Welcome to Forging Plowshares, a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom of God. We hope this part of our ongoing conversation stimulates your mind and challenges your heart about what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Please stay tuned at the end of the podcast for a short message about our ministry. Did you have a good week, Trenton? Yeah. We uh, went to Kansas City. My wife went skydiving. Well, that was interesting. Okay. Went skydiving, really? My goodness, what possessed And Alan is with us. Welcome back, Alan. Uh, how you doing, Thomas? Pretty good. A little tired, though. I just went to get some groceries and uh, walked back from the bus with my groceries. So, I bet you, uh, uh, you Canadians are probably like the British. That, you know, Americans, we never walk anywhere. <laughs> if, if we can drive. I remember as a child, we lived right next to the, the plant. My father would back the car up to go into the entrance of the plant. <laughs> I, when I went to school in England, I had, you know, I was having to walk everywhere and having to carry groceries. And I always was hoping, oh, I hope somebody feels sorry for me and picks me up. Never happened. I don't know if you got to it, the various podcasts on Kierkegaard, but in particular, Kierkegaard's sickness unto death in that lecture and I don't know if I put a, there's a blog there that does the same thing, but in the lecture, I tie together the sickness unto death into Lacanian psychoanalysis. I think it's an exact parallel. It's just a different idiom, a slightly different idiom. But I think they're describing, at least to me, it was sort of uncanny going through sickness unto death and realizing the degree that it ties into psychoanalytic literature. If nothing else, it gives you the same picture in two different idioms. Six must have been fairly easy for you. Let me pose it this way. My children bought a birthday present for me this year, and each week I received a prompt. And this week, the prompt was, explain, were you different as an adolescent than as an adult? I immediately took it in a kind of philosophical sense, which I don't think is actually in the spirit of the story. <laughs> I don't think anybody's going to want to read my philosophical wanderings, but it did, it ties into this, this section. I just have to be thinking about all this. And that is that we are finite subjects, and this is what Kierkegaard is talking about. Kierkegaard uses the idea of the body and the soul. He's just talking about that there's two sides to us, there is this dynamic relationship between, you know, maybe you could take it between the symbolic order or the ego, that in some way there is a disconjunction within ourselves. But the idea is that there's three basic attitudes, that you want to be yourself, that is, that you don't feel like you're full of yourself, or in fact, you want to be someone else, and he's describing this as despair. Or you can uh, deny that you're in despair at all. And I think what Kierkegaard is describing is this disjunction that we feel that is there between the two eyes, you know, the eye of the mind and the eye of the body. It's there in an uncanny way in Kierkegaard that the, the same idea that the body itself is something that we don't have access to. The body is written over with the symbolic order. This is Lacan, but I think this is Paul. And so in this chapter, part of the key 
element of it. And I think in a sense, this chapter is very simple. It makes very simple the idea, maybe the most obscure idea in Lacanian theory in Zizek is the real. The, the real is just this thing between the imaginary and the symbolic. It's that disruptive force. That It's that thing that intrudes in that relationship. So it's the gap between those two things. And of course, in Zizek, the idea is, well, those two things exist only as uh, they're opposed to one another. And so what, you know, it's very hard to describe the real, but what, what is most simple about the real is the real is just actually the body as a, the biological body that intrudes. You know, in Lacanian theory, you only have experience of your body as a kind of intrusion that it's always, always written over with this symbolic order. The body, the biological body is the real that we only have access to in and through the other two registers. But, but of course, by that, understand that the body that is rejected is not actually the biological body because the idea is it's, it's just there as a kind of negative force. You know, a simple way to, to think of this is that there is, you know, the refusal of castration or the refusal of sexual difference is a kind of refusal of this symbolic understanding. And so what tends to happen in especially the masculine order is that everything then is there, there is a kind in perversion the, the perverse orientation of the law simply takes over and there is a complete denial of any kind of disjunction, uh, a kind of unawareness of this biological or the, the bodily. And so I think that's an easy, an easy way. You know, when Paul talks about the body of death, uh, I think that's what he means that, in, you know, he, he refers to the principle of the flesh. And of course, the flesh is just the sin principle. This was my problem with David Bentley Hart, that Hart just says, oh, Paul is a typical dualist. You really have to read against scripture to get that, because Paul has a full appreciation for creation and embodiment. And so his principle of sin or his principle of the flesh is really, I think, this understanding that it is the idea of this thing that intrudes upon us, the flesh. There's nothing particularly out of control about, oh, we need to eat, we need to sleep, we, need, we, we reproduce. But those things written over with the symbolic order, suddenly they become a kind of exponential desire, a kind of drive to death, that, that the principle of flesh, of desire then, is that thing that intrudes. The idea in this chapter is that in Christ, that we die in Christ for Zizek, is that symbolic bind is undone in Christ. Because what we tend to do is we posit this other. And the other we might call God, we might call the, the other the law. I think it's just always there, whatever you know, it can manifest itself. And that's always what we're dealing with, that in some way 
this orientation to the law, and again, it's not the law per se, but it is the orientation. In other words, it, Paul says, sin deceived me in regard to the law. So the law is holy, just, and good, but sin then works through the law. And he's describing then this universal human predicament. It's certainly manifest and archetypically illustrated through the Jews, but Paul is saying the Jewish problem is the human problem. And so one of the surprising things that I think is just there in the New Testament, uh, the way that New Testament Christianity gets read is that Christ is reconciling us to the law or that Christ died to meet the requirements of the law. This is all there, and Douglas Campbell does a nice job of you know, running down these perverse orientations, which, of course, is just a misreading of the Apostle Paul. Paul had no notion of himself as inadequate in regard to the law. Paul considered himself perfect and just in regard to the law, uh, you know, that's the Philippians passage, that I was in every way righteous. He's describing himself, uh, he does the same thing in Galatians, that as he excelled in his Judaism, he became more a persecutor of the church. The more perfect he was in regard to the law, the more evil he became. For most Christians, that that shouldn't be, because what we think of Oh, well, we, you know, what is our problem? Well, God reveals himself in the law. All we need, need to do is keep the law. We can't do it. And so Jesus came to help us keep the law. That is a, a perverse reading of Christianity in which the law is made the absolute. This is a Zizek's reading, but I think that in this, in other words, we can go a long way with Zizek in this, that there is an undoing of this other that has a, a bind on us. Because what we're describing is not simply a theological error. It's just the way that we do human subjectivity. That this error is the error that we all, that binds all of us. So it's not, oh, those stupid people that make this theological mistake. No, this is sin. This is, this is the universal human predicament. And unfortunately, the tendency then is to read Christianity uh, as part of the problem, and so, or, or to read the problem as the solution. And so what Zizek is saying, I think you can go a long way in this, that the death of Christ gets rid of the big other. It gets rid of this perverse law. It gets rid of this obscene superego. I think we need that. We need to do that. Of course, to imagine that that gets rid of God, I think is is the mistake. So this is some of the some of the things that was really good. Some of the things that come up right before the body of sin when you're talking about uh, Zizek's reading of the significance of the death of Christ's focus on his death as revelation, and then the death of Christ as the exposure of the obscene superego economy of sacrifice, or to state it in Pauline Pauline terms the exposure of the deception of sin in regard to the law which killed me. I don't know. I wrote the, the true significance of, of Christ's death is that we're saved from sacrifice. There might be some theological implications that might make some people uncomfortable, I guess. And then 122, to die to is to have the faith of Christ and not simply to have faith in Christ. That is in his atoning sacrifice. 
so the, the 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 transition from you know believing in jesus as like or as christ as a way of being reconciled to god or something like this but rather as a to have faith of christ would be to share in his death is to is to die to the way of flesh and to be to give oneself over to love to imitate um that would be the difference between the faith of christ versus the faith in christ uh distinction in one yeah yeah two to 123 yeah i liked all that kind of stuff <laughs> oh good well did that ring bells for the rest of you because zizek sounds a lot like richard hayes here in fact, I don't know where he got this. And Zizek is a very orthodox, atheistic, materialist, Pauline Christian. I can't remember what. They were in some way saying, well, we can forego the necessity of baptism. And Zizek was saying, no, you, that baptism is a necessity. And what he means by that is that you have to pass through Christianity. This is only that this thing comes to us only through the specific revelation of Christ. Now, I just happen to believe that. I think that's the case, but you might want to push against that and say, well, there are other avenues. But to my mind, this is necessity of revelation, this breaking into the nature of this deception. Unfortunately, what we have in a perverse Christianity is just more deception. It is the idea that what you have in the death of Christ in perverse Christianity is a satisfying, I mean, that's literally the language that Anselm uses, that God is satisfied with the death of Christ. And so there is this obscenity that is put upon God. And of course, in Calvin, I think it's uh, or the wrath of God in this understanding becomes the primary issue in a lot of Christianity. Well, what's our problem? We don't need to do that again. But what, what we just did in this chapter is say, well, no, here's the problem. The problem is a human problem. And I think we've just described this problem. This may very be very hard to convince people of. Because I think many people have become Christians because of the need to be saved from the wrath of God. And the personal element uh, that we're describing here, the, the human predicament, is left out of the equation entirely. But when you begin to read the New Testament again, especially, you know, this, is, this book that we're focused on Romans, you know, go back to Romans chapter 1. Well, he does talk about the wrath of God, but it's the wrath of God revealed from heaven now. And then he goes through and describes the various perversities that exist in the human condition, inclusive of, you know, sexual perversities. But to imagine any of those things are the primary root problem, this is coming straight out of George MacDonald. Uh, George MacDonald says, you know, that we, we are caught up in talking about the Christianity as resolving the effects of sin and rather than dealing with the root problem. And I think what we're describing here is the root problem. Yeah. So, um, Paul, I guess I'm thinking astrally. It's, it's helping or trying to convince people that it's not that they need to be saved from God. They need to be saved from themselves. 
people are, are, you know, people are suffering. People are sick. What we're describing is why people would put the gun in their mouths. In psychoanalysis, you know, the death drive, this is, they really do use this clinically, that the compulsions that people get, the compulsion to repeat, that is death dealing. Now, this is actually there in Kierkegaard, that that compulsion, what do you want to do? You want to get rid of it. The, the thing, there is a, a fate worse than death, and that's why people would kill themselves. This fate worse than death is what we're describing. It is this drive, and I can't get rid of this drive, the compulsion to repeat, the compulsion to obtain, the, the, the desire. It's not a pleasant desire. It's sick. Hmm. So that it literally, I think, is, it is the human disease. There may be many ways of describing this clinically. I mean, that's not my area. But I think that here is the foundation of beginning to understand uh, why people are masochistic or sadistic, that we're talking about evil. One of the blogs I put up, the guy, he kills his children and his wife. He puts them in a barrel, and then after that, he describes why he did it. And so I, that, in that blog, what I, I think what we're tracing in this, you know, what is the anatomy of evil? I think that's what we're describing, mm. that people literally will kill other people or themselves uh, in the, the throes of the, the drives that we're describing in servitude to this law. Now, that may not ring true to you. Why would the guy kill his own children and his wife to enjoy, to obtain, to, you know, that that, that was the language you can see it, it usually that, that that's a rather gruesome form of evil but it does happen in japan we had a, a i'm sorry i got off into the evil but we had a, a guy there at scuba university he he uh chopped up his whole family and put them in a garbage bag his two of his children and his wife threw them in the river and was a medical doctor so that he could continue, the obstacle would be removed so that he might have full relations with his girlfriend. In other words, what we're describing is there's always this obstacle cause of desire, that there's always something in the way. And if we could just get rid of it, I think we are describing a kind of ultimate evil here. And so why did Christ die? To, to defeat evil. In other words, he's dying because the people that killed him are serving this excess themselves. They are serving the symbolic order. They are following the dictates of the law as they've understood it. That one man might die that the nation would be saved. You know, that he is the obstacle. So Christ dies to defeat evil. It's a very simple idea that is just Christianity. And yet we've lost that. We've lost the, the, the notion that, of what, first of all, evil might consist of and how Christ might address it. But I think that it's all just there. And uh, Paul, with the early Christians and the early Christian community, is there a way in which their common life was enacting a different symbolic order or a different, uh, in other words, that their life together of love and sharing, hitting the poor, was 
the opposite of that symbolic order that killed Christ. Yeah, because this is the big struggle in the early church. This is what the letters of the New Testament are written about, is that the impetus of the early Jewish Christians is, well, we still have to follow the law. We still, we're, we, we still have to observe the Sabbath. And of course, what I think is happening is that Paul is deconstructing that, but even Jesus is deconstructing that. That Jesus has already said, well, you know those food laws? We'll set that aside. In fact, we know, just use your heads, guys, Jesus says, uh, that what you, know, what you take into your body is not what makes you unclean, but it's what comes out of your body, out of your heart. And Mark says, and thus we declare, he declared the food laws invalid. He does the same thing in regard to swearing. You know, there are all kinds of laws about how you can swear. And Jesus says, I think the whole thing is of the devil. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. What's he talking about? Is that some sort of just tradition? No, he's talking about the Old Testament. Uh, he does the same thing in regard to the Sabbath. He says, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath. In other words, there is an inadequate understanding. There is a perverse understanding that I think Jesus is correcting that is there in the Old Testament. And to cling to the law is to cling to a perverse understanding of God. That Christ himself and Paul then that's what they're combating. If you insist on being a Jew, a law-keeping Jew, uh, and you imagine that the only way to be part of the kingdom is a, a law-keeping Jew, in Paul's estimate, that disqualifies you as a Christian. He has no problem if somebody wants to do the lifestyle. It's not that. It's just that their tendency is to attach ultimate reality to this symbolic order. And that's what's being undone in Christ. Isn't that just the New Testament? I think Zizek has hit upon a, a key point here. Now, obviously, it's not just that. That's not, just, that's not the end of the story. But, boy, that's the beginning of the story. Um, kind of going from what Rob said there, um, I was wondering if you could say more about the community of the Holy Spirit. I don't know, 123... The eternal life fostered through the death of Christ is the community which can can merge in a new sort of human bond called Holy Spirit. A kind of a sense, I guess, like you're like Rob's talking about the early church. You know, they they shared all they had, and that kind of acts to like you know this thing we uphold. We uphold this com community, but then sometimes struggle to actualize it or to uh, yeah, maybe you can say more about that. Community of the Holy Spirit. And, I, and of course, I, I need to remind you in this chapter again, I'm just doing Zizek. We're not doing anything orthodox yet. But boy, you can go a long way with Zizek. But on this, I, you know, Zizek is going to say, well, the Holy, the community of the Holy Spirit, it's like Joe Hill, the union organizer. You know, the thugs, they killed him. But you can't kill Joe Hill. Because all of us who are part of the union are Joe Hill come to life. And so, the, 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 you know, that's the, for Zizek, that is, you know, uh, union organizations, the, you know, he goes through the various communities, none, none of which would be the church. By the way, this, I'll advertise my next class. Next class is on the Holy Spirit. 
one of the most controversial things, I think, in the history of church, the church that really divides up Christianity. What will be done with the Holy Spirit? I kind of like Richard Hayes' discussion here with this, that we've kind of, in our individualized Western Christianity, we picture the gift of the Holy Spirit as my, you know, that's my personal thing. But you, you don't have to think about it very long to, to realize, oh, just look at the gifts. The gifts are all for the community. And Richard Hayes' point is there is no personal gift, no private gift of the Holy Spirit. The gift is communal. Now, I, you know, I don't know that you need to make that sharp division, but I think the idea, and this is kind of what Zizek is getting at, that there is a refounding of human subjectivity in the, the death of Christ that is going to then, I think, open up this possibility of life in the spirit. In the alienated symbolic gap, you know, that is the key to human subjectivity. Of course, part, you know, the jealousy, the anger, all of the, all of the fruits of the unspirit, I think are a byproduct of that alienation. And so the fruits of the spirit, love, joy, peace, long suffering. I think there is a a closure, that gap is no longer operating or should not be operating in the community of the saved. You know, as materialistic as Zizek is in describing this, I think that he has hit upon a point until we get rid of God as uh, the God of the law, the, uh, the symbolic order, and that whole notion of, you know, the sacrificial system, the gap, all of that is simply a re reinforcement of a perverse personality. Once you pass through, I mean, that's Paul's description, and Zizek turns to Romans 6. He doesn't, you know, he mainly is dealing with 7, but he also turns to 6 and 8. And in 6, he's very interested in baptism. And of course, that's what the theme is in Romans 6, is that the passage into death rids us of the obscene superego, that in, in, in effect is keeping us pitted against ourselves and one another and God. So that, that would be my point there. And of course, Zizek's picture of the community of the saved is inadequate. I, I, I don't mean to sell this chapter. We need to move on from chapter six to chapter, you know, but tonight we're just doing Zizek. And Zizek, what he's saying here, it's a very tightly... I mean, in his own strange way, orthodox Christianity. That is, you need the specific revelation of Christ. You need entry. You need the faith of Christ. You need all of that, I think, is, is part of what he's described. Mm. Yeah, Paul, I was just uh, looking at page 124 where, I mean, he sounds like, like he's a Christian. Like, I mean, he says, um, here enters the good news of Christianity, the miracle of faith, is that it is possible to traverse the fantasy, to undo the founding decision, and to start one's life all over again from the zero point. Is he calling us to conversion, is he? <laughs> yeah, come forward. And uh, I, I sometimes won't think he is describing Christianity in more adequate terms than we sometimes do. What we need is a refounding of human subjectivity. Oh, don't we have... We call that being born again. Oh, can we describe that? Yeah, I think we can. Literally, it is this shift that is described in 7 to 8. 
it is a passage from a subjectivity that is a self-grounding subjectivity in which, you know, there is this, this gap in the, the literally death or not, you know, you, you understand in articulating death and nothingness, that always rings a little bit untrue because what we're actually describing is just a negative force. This negative force is taken as a kind of absolute in our own grounding of ourselves in this self-grounding subjectivity. That's what Kierkegaard is describing in despair. That's what Lacan is describing. But all any of them are doing is just saying, well, this is what Paul is describing, is that the human subject, apart from God, you remember the uh, entry into the sickness unto death, he you know, says, what is a subject? A subject is, a, is one who relates himself to, his, to himself. He's not the relation. In other words, he goes through this. He's just playing off these, this refracted notion of the cell. Then he talks about this third term. In other words, there's the self and there's the relationship to the cell. And then there's a third term in the relation. He could be describing the ego, the imaginary, you know, the symbolic, and then this third term. The third term in Romans 7 is not God. The third term is the body of death, right? What's holding you together? Well, it's, uh, uh, the problem is I'm not holding together. It's this negative force. Maybe we call it the law, but Paul is equating. In other words, the body written over with the law is the body of death. And so I think you can say the third term is this negativity. It is this absence. It is death. It is nothingness. And of course, that's what you're getting in Heidegger. You know, that's what you're getting in Hegel. They are literally taking the third term as if it functions as an absolute in place of God. That's what Paul says. The idol is nothing. In other words, when God is not specifically the third term, then what gets put in there? Well, it could be the law, it could be an idol, it could just be death and nothingness, or, you know, fill in the blank. Whatever your symbolic order, the negative force of that is what's going to fill in the blank. So Zizek turning to Christ and the faith of Christ rather than faith in Christ, he's already beginning to pick up Romans 8, because the third term is in fact this Trinitarian relationship in which God is the third term. God is the creator. This is Genesis, you know, in the beginning he created the male and female, and Paul says, you know, the two shall become one, but this is through God. That Paul says God is the third term, the one who, in Kierkegaard's terms, fills in the place that is resolves that tension, that agonistic struggle. I think maybe a, uh, maybe like a simple way to say it is that in, in the one picture, the law establishes the self, and the other picture, Kierkegaard's picture, God. So in other words, in the one picture, the law is the power that establishes the self. In the other picture, God is the power that establishes the self. Yeah, that we depend upon God. And that is literally we're integrated into the Trinity in Romans 8. We stand in the place of the Son. We don't have faith in the objective work of Christ. And I'm not leaving that entirely out. But the primary point is we take up the Christ position in our relationship to God. 
the faith of Christ allows us to call God Abba Father. And so in that understanding, it is the Father who is in primary view, the Creator, I think is the idea, uh, through the Son, and the Holy Spirit is the one who enables that. I was just going to say that the to me that's easier, that's a nice little way to think of it, that in the one picture, you know, the law is the power that establishes the self. And but Paul says in First Corinthians 15 that you know the power of sin is the law, <laughs> you know, and that's I think that that's that's the picture that you're describing. You're saying okay, well if there's there's a self that's established in the law, but it's purely negative. It's a construct. It's a fiction. It's a it's it's a it's grounded in a sort of abyss or a gap or a negativity or whatever. You know, we can all these different ways of describing it. But then in the other picture, the God is the power that establishes the self. That is, it's real, it's substantial, it gives it an actual ground. It's not, you know, it's not a, a construct or a fiction or an emptiness. It's like a pleroma or a fullness, an overflowing of, of actual being. Instead of, in the, in the former, you know, um, analogy, it's a lack of being. It's a non-being. It's evil. It's uh, an absence. So I think it's, it's just two ways of, like, I think, talking about what a human being is, right? It is Trinitarian in both instances. What's missing is Trinitarian. You know, it's the, it's the symbolic order displaces God. The law displaces God. I'm not, that's not a problem with the law, because the law was never meant to function as an absolute. But our tendency is to always make the law function as an absolute. But isn't it clear, though, that law gives sin its power? Isn't that what his argument is? That, yeah, I mean, sin, he, sin and law are intertwined. I mean, he, I'm just quoting 1 Corinthians 15. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, 56, where he says that the law gives sin its power. So in other words, like, if you're going to ground the self in the law— or whatever it is that you're describing as the power that sort of establishes the self, what you're ultimately saying is that sin or a deception or an absence or, uh, you know, non-being is what's actually grounding that subject. And of course, I think it's there in 15. We did a whole podcast on this, but it's there in Romans 5. I think it's there's a 1 Corinthians 15. I've kind of forgotten. Uh, the In both instances... <laughs> Hey, hey, I got this book. <laughs> uh, he, in both instances, he's talking about that the mistranslation we have in Augustine is actually pertains only to Romans 5. But unfortunately, that just gets spread over everything. Uh, and that is that the mistranslation is that the death arises due to sin. Paul is actually saying just the opposite that death spread, and where death spread, sin spread. And I think that the relationship between sin and death is through the law. That is the way that you would, you know, the, uh, the, the depiction is the way you deal with death in sin is through the law. That life is in the law. That's a lie, right? That's not the truth. That's a lie. That is the lie that Paul is trying to dispel. And so the power of sin in the law is the thing that has us by the throat. It's what makes us sick. And, and you understand when we're talking about law. The guy that kills his children and his wife, it's because of the law that he's following. So there's the transgressive side or there is the, you know, it, it's just two sides of the same law. But the idea is the law 
of the superego. You understand the superego law is, is completely evil. You know, the Zizek always says, what does the law want? Enjoy. Enjoy. You know. Uh, <laughs> oh, well, you get somebody saying that enough, that becomes a, a perversity. That is that you're going to obtain life in the enjoyment. You're going to obtain the, the, so that we're still talking about law when we're talking about this transgressive desire. It's still an orientation to the law. Is that there in First Corinthians 15? That the, sting of de- that the sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. That's the one that you got me on you one day. You said, which one is which? You know, we usually say that it's, that the, that the sting of, of sin is death, but that's not what it is. It's the sting of death is sin. Did you hear everybody hear it? We just all naturally mistranslate. We misread it. We transpose it. And we're trained to transpose it, to say the sting of sin is death. That's perverse Christianity. It says the sting of death is sin. It's exactly the opposite. Does everybody get the significance there? Because death is a reality. What the sting of it is that when we take it up in sin, and so the death that we would take up into ourselves is the, 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 the sting of sin. That is that death is an orientation in which the law of sin and death becomes a kind of absolute. And so I, I think the deeper our theological training very often, the more likely we are to misread the New Testament because this is what we've all been trained in. Yeah, but it's, hard, it's hard to get your head around that. You don't, you don't die, you know, because you sin. Um, you sin because you're, you know, you're dead. <laughs> you have taken death up into yourself. Yeah. You have a perverse orientation to, the, to reality itself, right? Because if obviously if you were oriented to life and to God and to truth and beauty and goodness, you know, you wouldn't throw yourself off, you know, into the fires or whatever. You wouldn't, you wouldn't sin and kill yourself, right? Isn't that what you're saying? It's like, but, but because, because of our orientation to the law and to, to sin and to death, we imagine that it's in death or in sin that we actually have life, enjoyment, you know, uh, jouissance, uh, excessive sort of pleasure or whatever you want to call it, you know, uh, that that's where the real good stuff is, you know, life. Yeah. Yeah. You call zest or whatever. What do you? What's the word you call it? You know, gusto or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm always quoting the beer commercial. Yeah. Grab all the gusto you can. Yeah, it's it's interesting, isn't it, that the um, the early church fathers often spoke of sin as a sickness. Our problem wasn't that you know we were lawbreakers, but we we're sick, and so Jesus was the healer who can heal us from that sickness. And in, in modern contemporary evangelical uh, circles, you don't often, I mean, sometimes you do it, but not so often you hear that. Saying that, uh, I forget, I don't know if it's one of the fathers who said it, but it's that, you know, sin is less of a stain that needs removed and more of a wound that needs healed. That's uh, good. Yeah. No, it is. <laughs> That's the quote, Matt. <laughs> I don't mean this. Uh, this is me. Just attribute it to me. No, I, I don't. Father <laughs> <heard that>. Matt. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I I heard it somewhere. Yeah, that. Uh, That's good. That's yeah, good. yeah, yeah. I think that is sin. Sin is less of a of a stain that needs you know, and a wound that needs healing. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, you're right, Rob. That I. This is the way that the early church talked about this. this is Irenaeus. This is you know the notion of it is a refounding. This is recapitulation. 
Mm. Um, but it's just, you know, Jesus is the great physician. Suddenly this makes sense of the New Testament. Oh, this is what all this healing is about. This is yeah. what, you know, Jesus is addressing the human condition. But we've lost that in the misfocus on the problem being in God. I'm just thinking how how uh, secular modern people might actually more readily respond to that message. You know, instead of saying, you know, you're a bad person because you sinned and you broke God's holy law, which makes no sense to them. We say, well, you know, we're all... Um, we're all pretty effed up, aren't we? <laughs> we're yeah. all pretty sick, and we need that, which I think people know. Yeah, yeah. Now, I, I, I will say that there is some bad pop psychology that sometimes gets worked into preaching that unfortunately does us, just, it does us a disservice, which maybe this is kind of a downer because what we're saying is, oh, it, it's not looking good for the human race. Uh, people are really sick. And of course, what you would say in pop psychology is I'm okay, you're okay. Yeah. What we need is more self-confidence. Uh, and so there, unfortunately, the pop psychology uh, is just as perverse very often. I'm, I, I'm not familiar with everybody, but what, what I've heard of it, it tends to be not the, the passage you read. Was that you, Rob? That there is a refounding of human subjectivity in Christ. Oh, yeah. I've never, I, I don't, I don't know that you're going to get that. Mm. Isn't that, the, I mean, isn't that like the Orthodox teaching is that in Christ, there's quite literally a new humanity. Like that is what Christianity is, is that because God became man, humanity was changed, redeemed, uh, the, the, a new, you know, a new subject came into being. Was there was there a, a truly human person? I, this is a question I don't know the answer to. You know, it's like was there was someone who was truly human before the incarnation of Christ? Yeah, I think this is good Orthodox Christianity that the creation continues through Christ, and the fullness of what it means to be human is still an unfolding reality. Uh, in Christ. So to say that Christ is the first human one, I think that's very orthodox, yeah, that we fail, that, you know, this is very Kierkegaardian, that uh, we can fail to be human. Isn't that obvious, that that we we can fall short of our humanity? <laughs> and isn't that your book? I mean, part of what your book is saying is, is that part of our perversion is that we would imagine that it's our sin that makes us human. We would imagine that, you know, to err is human, to forgive is divine. You know, to, in other words, like we would, we would conflate sin and humanity, you know, what it means to be fully human, you know. That's exactly what you're, that's a deception, that's a lie. Because Christ is the truly human one and he never sinned. You know, like that's, the, that's how we know what humanity looks like is in Christ, that he's the truly human one and he never sinned. So it can't be that sin is what makes us human or, or that empties Christ of his humanity, you know? So that, that's why I, it is kind of key, I think, that when God becomes a, a man and human, you know, in Jesus Christ, that it really, that's where my understanding kind of breaks down, you know, that that a new type of way to be human is sort of um, unlocked, I guess, for a better word, you know, lack of a better word. But isn't that what the claim of, that, that's the claim of your book, that you're saying that apart from a divine intervention, there's a subject that can only be grounded in something like an act, an, an absence, uh, you know, 
or the law or, or whatever else. That's what I'm saying. <laughs> Maybe that's too dark. I don't know. I, actually, I think I think it's not, Paul. I, I, I think it's hard. It, it is hard, but if we can help people go deeper into how sick they are, <laughs> then hopefully at the same time we can help them see how incredibly powerful and beautiful the cure, the healing is in Jesus, right? Yeah, yeah. And of course, that's the problem is that this is also unpleasant. <laughs> and what we get in church, this is sort of by the Stephen, this stuff we've done on shame. You know, I think shame, I think the church can be a kind of shaming experience because we go there and, you know, those people don't seem to have any trouble. Well, of course, they're all, it's a facade that we, you know, we, we wear. And there is no dealing with the depths of the human predicament. And that's why the, the whole experience of church can often be so unsatisfying, because there's really no addressing of human perversity. Which and is, it's on, on display all around us. It's really ironic, because this is the whole, we've talked about this before, you, baptism in the early church. Face your shame. You know, you come up in front of everyone, you get naked, you, you know, uh, you, you, face, you face the West, you denounce Satan, you come, you get into the baptismal waters, you come out, they put a robe on you, you know. It's like, you know, you do confession. That's part of like a healing uh, because you come to terms with the reality of your sickness and you, you confess to someone else, to the priest or whoever, and say, yeah, you know, I, I did this and I did that. And it's like, but that's the way that you overcome your shame is by, Jesus says in Mark 8, you know, he says, well... Whoever, you know, confesses me before men, uh, you know, the son will confess him before God and the angels and whoever is ashamed of the son of man before men. So to me, I guess like there's a, the church is supposed to be exactly the opposite of what you're describing. It's supposed to be a place like a hospital or whatever for sinners where we come and we overcome our shame and instead of, it, 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 you know, instead of it being like a shame festival. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yeah, I, th I think the language of shame gets at the same thing, because what shame is describing is this falling apart, this becoming undone, and uh, that what we would resist with all everything in us is literally that, that feeling. It, it is what it feels like to die, and so you would do anything to get rid of that. I mean, we, this is getting real hitting all of us close to home because we all know what that feels like. Hmm. We would run and hide. We would, you know, whatever it takes. I, I think that, that murderous rage is very much associated. I, I don't know why I always go dark, but it, it is an illustration of the, the rage that of, of people. If you want to get yourself killed, uh, shame someone continually. Or if you want someone to kill themselves. Just open them to continual shame. Do that in Mexico to your neighbors, Alan, and see how long you last. No thanks. <laughs> <laughs> they're all they're all pretty macho guys, I'm guessing. Uh, yeah, and also like you know when we're discussing, it, it also gives us a, a better understanding of what's going on, you know, like in in the Gospels. Like for example, Matthew. You know, most people after the Sermon on the Mount, they focus so much on the miracles. Like, oh, yeah, he, Jesus is going around healing people. But the whole point is not just about healing people, but about restoring them. These people are as good as dead. They're outcasts. There are people who, you know, 
nobody cares for them. So they're pretty much dead to anybody. And so the whole point about their, the healing of them is, is about restoring them to society, not just, oh, well, you know, he can see now. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, even I think there's a, you know, a problem in the translations there too, where, you know, for example, the lady who's been bleeding for 12 years, and usually, you know, whenever she touches uh, uh, Jesus' robe, it says that, oh, your faith has made you well. But the, the word there is, you know, it has saved you. Mm. You know, it's not just about the, the healing. She's, she's bumping into people, making everybody unclean <laughs> in the process to get to Jesus. And instead of infecting Jesus with her impurity, she becomes, and becomes infected with his purity. And so she's been saved. She's been restored. So in, in those stories, you know, every act of God's restoration, it's our resurrection. Mm. Everybody's coming back to life. Shame is a, a contagion. You know, that's the, the way we, and that, that, this sounds a lot like Rene Girard, you know, mm. that, that when it comes to scapegoating, Boy, you don't want to be identified with the scapegoat. If you're going to hold together, you want to be with those who do the scapegoating. But of course, that's Jesus can endure the shame. He can endure the contagion. You know, it's very a very difficult thing. I think we that's the, the point in the illustration of Peter denying Christ, because he's a part of the contagion of, you know, the crowd. And once you're caught up in that, uh, it's it's easy just to scapegoat with everyone else, and so yeah, I think uh, you're on uh, what you're describing is this is also in answer to your question, Nathan. You know what is the community of the Holy Spirit? I think it's where this shame honor system, the balance between those two, you know, is undone. That there is that the picture is being clothed in Christ. Yeah. That there is a, a curing. Isn't, isn't as well, um, just adding on to that, I mean, uh, Alcoholic Anonymous. I'm not an expert in Alcoholic Anonymous or the 12-step recovery, but my understanding was that when people come together in those groups, the first thing you have to say is, hello, my name is Rob. I'm an alcoholic. Yeah. <laughs> Whether you, that kind of encounter may be one of the few ways in which we can begin to address this, right? Yeah, I think people may have better fellowship in Alcoholics Anonymous than in the typical church. Uh, actually, one night, Faith and I had a flat tire in some place, and a group from Alcoholics Anonymous picked us up. They were the nicest people I've ever run into. I always thought, boy, that, you know. <laughs> Paul, Paul, first step is to admit that you have a problem. <laughs> yes, yes. I Yeah. You're powerless, actually. Big problem. A big problem. <laughs> That you're powerless. Yeah, I the, the, one of the things that really um, with Paul, you know, when I when I first started taking Paul's classes, you know, he he was doing he was talking about Genesis three, and I'd never heard it explained like this. He was like, but he was like, you know, if you read Genesis three, this is how the Bible starts. You know, there's the creation, there's two creation narratives, and then Genesis three happens, and he was like, you know, the the humans they sin, and he was like, you know, the first thing they realize is not like, oh, you know, I I transgressed, I broke the law, I'm guilty. The first thing that they realize is, is that they're naked and that they're ashamed. And that that is what the rest of the Bible 
is about is like addressing that mm. pure like very subjective sort of ontological human predicament that the the humans are naked they're ashamed and then they you know the, it's the first appearance of the i the ego in the body you know adam says i was naked so i hid because i was afraid because i was you know he starts he kind of coming apart and he says something like I hid myself behind the tree and, you know, and Paul said, well, which one was the eye that was hiding and which was the self that was being hidden, you know? And in other words, like Adam's completely falling apart. You know, he scapegoats Eve. He says, well, it was the woman that you gave me scapegoats God. It's like, it's, it's all there, you know, in Genesis three. And then like, you know, Paul was talking about how the rest of the narrative of the scripture is like basically addressing like this, you know, very particular specific sort of, you know, um, human predicament, and that the that the culmination of it, uh, happens um, with God being crucified naked on a wow. tree. You know, not being able to control his bowels. And I was thinking when we were talking earlier, it's like he, Jesus says the like the craziest thing. Like in the moment when it's like in in like the worst possible moment, whenever everyone's looking at him, like, see, we knew it. Look. You know, if he was the Messiah, God would have saved him or he could take himself. Jesus says, like, the worst thing. He says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, it's like it's such a vulnerable, like, moment of identification of, like, the just abject shame of, like, the human, like, vulnerable sort of condition. Like, he identifies himself with shameful, abandoned, because it's it's a, it's a kind of a terrifying thing that's happening in Genesis 3 there. It's like it was the way that Paul was describing it, that imagine, you know, Adam is like serene. He's full of peace and joy and love and community and communion with God. And that, that when, when God said to him in the day that you eat the fruit, you know, you'll die that, well, he didn't biologically die, but what he did experience was shame. And that must've felt like death to Adam because it was like the first time he, it was like being ripped apart from himself and from Eve and from God and from, you know, and, and experiencing fear for the first time and panic for the first time. And, and all this sort of, it must've felt like, you know, death to him. And uh, I was really like, wow, you know, there's gotta be something to this kind of narrative theology. Cause that's what the lecture I think was on. It was like narrative theology, you know? And I was like, wow, because, you know, Paul's saying that, yeah, you know, this is the very thing that's being addressed in, in Genesis 12 with the calling of Abraham, you know, and then in Genesis, you know, the rest of the Abraham story. And, and then all the way through, and I was like, wow, you know, this is the, the clothing that's being, whenever God steps in and clothes them from their nakedness, then like that's foreshadowing like the resurrection, you know, and I was like, man, there's got to be something to this, you know, like psychologically and, and sociologically, you know, anthropologically or, or whatever, that this is so much more of an interesting kind of understanding of what Christianity is rather than you, you know, I transgressed and I broke a law and Jesus paid my debt so that my account is settled. You know what I'm saying? Like that whole kind of um, financial sort of like, you know, like way of understanding it. So, yeah, I think the language of shame is the language of death drive. Or it's the same thing. Why did Cain kill Abel? He was ashamed. I think because of his shame. Because he wanted what he was put to shame. Uh, he was displaced by Abel. You just open a newspaper any day and see what the murders are about. In Japan, I remember a kid, he took a baseball bat and uh, whacked his uncle in the head, just pounded him in the head until he was dead. Why? Because every day his uncle... Uh, would make fun of his Japanese. He had lived in the United States and he came back to Japan and he had an accent. It can be anything. 
you know, in Japan, it's very important that, you know, you're Japanese because you speak Japanese. And to make us fun of somebody's accent is a shaming experience. You know that in those situations, the death in what Cain did to Abel, Jesus is saying, here's the history of murder. I'm going to unfold for you the history of killing. And you're about to kill me for the same thing. That is the revelation that we have in Christ. The impetus behind what we would do is to write our body over. We would cover ourselves with the law. We would cover ourselves with the symbolic order. So that may be any number of things. That, that is the, the orders of which we are a part that in some way cover over. That vulnerability, that contingency, that finitude, that subject, being subject to death. Isn't it shame? Isn't shame just another word that you could say that like, in other words, like, aren't you explaining that outside of Christ, the subject is grounded upon literally like kind of like the abyss of shame and that, uh, that the ego is a con it's a symbolic, it's a construct to sort of um, deal with that shame, right? You, you, you create a whole identity of like, I'm strong, I'm cool. I'm a pirate fan. It doesn't matter what, what, however you want to do the identity, but that it's an attempt to deal with that sort of originary ontological absence or shame um, that you're covering up with an identity of some sort. That's it. So the, the wisdom literature says that pride, pride comes before a fall. Pride comes before shame. Pride is the covering. It's the symbolic order. It is the identity. And it's always going to come undone, you know. And in one way or another, it's going to come undone. But of course, that's where we meet God. Because as long as we are attached to this symbolic order, whatever it may be, that displaces actually the role that God is supposed to play in our lives. Does that sound too Christian? <laughs> I'll, I'll preach on that on Sunday, Paul. Okay. You know, I'm actually, <laughs> I'm actually speaking on Sunday from Mark chapter 10 about the rich young guy who comes to Jesus and Jesus says, one thing you lack, you lack, give everything you have. And he won't, he can't. So even as you guys are talking, I'm thinking, oh my goodness, this is good. How do I preach this on Sunday? <laughs> I've got three days. <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, it's just every, once you pick it up, this is the stories of the New Testament. Jesus you know, was the, the guy to give up his identity. His identity oh. was so linked, you know, with his stuff, with his material stuff that, Maybe, maybe it was, maybe it was, and it's, but that's the story of all of us, that Jesus is asking us to exchange our identity that we would, we would ground in ourselves to have ourselves instead be established by God, a new self, yeah. a new self, you know, that's yeah. established by God. Like, let's yeah. see what that looks like. You know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. You know, Matt, it's in the, in the passage, it's funny, isn't it? How, not funny, it's in, how the guy says, I've done everything. I've got everything. And Jesus says, no, no, you lack one thing. There's one thing you still don't have. And it's that very thing that will turn his whole life around. Yeah, yeah. It's a, it, That word lack is an interesting word. That's what yeah. we're talking about. That's, that's what, we're, what talking. we're talking about. Yeah, the, the missing piece. Yeah. Yeah, that's the difference between, Nick, you know, the comparison and John, Nicodemus, he can't do it. The woman at the well can do it. Mm. Because... Her attachment to the law is not that of Nicodemus. She's already ashamed. Yeah. Yeah, that's why the, the humble, the outcast, 
that in some way they're they're already set to obviously to to. So what, what do I do with my uh, middle class aspirational wealthy <laughs> congregation? Because <laughs> the one thing they don't want to do is deal with their shame <laughs> or yeah. even acknowledge it. That's what Jesus says. You know, you you say that you're rich and you don't you know you don't need anything, but you don't know that you're ashamed and. That we have a perverse Christianity attached to the law. Mike Pompeo says you cannot question the Constitution of the United States because the very foundations of the country will un come undone. He's saying that in response to critical race theory, which uh, all the critical race theory is is saying is that there is an inherent bias in the law, even in the very construct of race, and, and to even begin to question the law is a challenge to the whole the very foundation of the country and it's the evangelical christians matt was sending me stuff before this you know the guys going in on uh into the capitol building carrying the jesus signs i guess you were comparing it to the nazi belt buckle that also said what what, what was on the nazi belt belt buckle the Nazi, but yeah, the guy was, it was the guy, it was the Capitol police officer. He was testifying about the January 6th riots and he was saying, it was clear that the people who were there, you know, were, were thinking that they were Christians and they were, they were holding Christian flags and chanting Christian slogans and all this stuff. And the, the Nazi soldiers all wore a, uh, a belt buckle. I don't know if you can see it, but it just it says that says in German, "God with us." That was Paul's whole thing last time. Is like you know, uh, everyone's sort of doing evil in God's name. Everybody thinks God is with them. And I like what the last thing I'll say is I like what Paul just said because we were talking about hysteria last class about questioning, you know. And that Paul just said he was like, but to even begin to question, even to begin to raise the question in your congregation. Um, you know, uh, Rob or, or, or Alan or, or me, it was, all I did was like, I just raised the, the question of like, well, should we, you know, be supporting Trump on wholeheartedly as Christians? That was enough to sort of end our relationship. Like, this is real, this is real stuff that really does to put ourselves in the, un, like, it's easy to be in like the unquestioning sort of, um, perverse Christianity, you know, it's, but it's really difficult. Jesus calls it taking up your cross, you know, to like, to, to question um, the, the rule, like of sort of like the standard, you know, way that things are. It's a very dangerous, Paul used to always say, it's a very dangerous thing naming the idols. You it know, is. You name people's idols, it's like, get ready, because you might get fired, you might get killed, you might get divorced, you know, you might get whatever. You sent me the Bob Dylan song. I used that on Sunday. I opened my sermon on Sunday with Bob Dylan. In the Midwest, you know, the whole ethos, we have God on our side, and he goes through and describes all the war. And we know in each war we have God on our side. And then he ends the refrain, the one thing you cannot question is that God is on our side. You end up with the, the crazy situation in World War One, right, where the Germans thought God was on their side, and the British were saying, you know, in God we trust. <laughs> Yeah. Well, God save the queen. So, so you're both killing each other in God's name. So wonderful. Yeah, that, that is perversion. But literally, in a psychoanalytic sense, that is perversion. That's by definition. You cannot question the structure of the law. If I think it ties in philosophically to Kierkegaard. It ties into Hegel. So, you know, uh, and obviously uh, Heidegger's always there. I, for me, he's, uh, he's my favorite pervert. Um, 
favorite Nazi. Yeah, <laughs> of my Nazi philosophers, he's my favorite. <laughs> All right, we'll see everybody uh, next week. Okay, good class. Yeah. Forging Plowshares is a community dedicated to cultivating the peaceful kingdom by providing in-depth, transformative biblical and theological education and discipleship. If you have found this podcast valuable, please remember to share on social media. If you have questions about what you've heard, or if you'd like to learn more about how you can get involved with Forging Plowshares or even support this ministry financially, please visit our website, forgingplowshares.org.